Why didn't Jesus quote the rest of verse 2? Why did he stop at a comma? Why did he stop right in the middle of a verse? Why did he say, I've come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord? And the next line about God's vengeance was left out. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a message entitled, The Great Timeout, in which Pastor Brogy examines the 70 weeks prophecy outlined in Daniel chapter 9. Last week, we reviewed the first 69 weeks of this prophecy, and remember, Daniel is talking about a week of years. So this time frame is actually 483 years, beginning with the rebuilding of Jerusalem and culminating on Palm Sunday as Jesus entered that city triumphantly. Before the next seven years takes place, a time we know as the Great Tribulation, there will be an unspecified amount of time. And that time we are currently living in, known as the Church Age. We're going to talk this morning, as you can see, about the Great Time Out. Between the 69th week and the 70th week, there is a gap of time because the Jewish people did not recognize the day of their visitation. This is not some new teaching. You can go back to the church fathers of Arrhenius and Hippolytus and others who recognized and affirmed this. And of course, Jesus affirmed it as well. So there in your note-taking outline, first, I want us to think about the crucifixion of the Christ. Notice what happened. After Palm Sunday in verse 26, this is new ground. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. After the 62 weeks, that's like saying after the 69th week, because 7 and 62 are brought together, the Messiah, the Messiah will be karat. Karat is the Hebrew word for execute. He will be cut off. There are numerous examples all the way through the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 8, one of the great prophetic passages on the crucifixion. Isaiah wrote, he was cut off. He was executed out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So Daniel is giving the time of the same prophecy that Isaiah wrote of. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Right here in the Old Testament, we have a prophecy that the Messiah, when he comes, is destined to be killed. That the Messiah is going to be executed, that he is going to be executed for a capital crime. And this prophecy, of course, clearly points to the crucifixion of Christ. And this event is after the 62 weeks. At the end of the 69th week, the Messiah will be executed. And of course, you know, right after Palm Sunday, a few short days later, Jesus was nailed to a cross. So Daniel is told by Gabriel that all of this will happen, and he's told it centuries before Jesus ever leaves heaven and takes on our humanity. And so if you're a Hebrew today and you are looking for a good candidate for the Messiah, I have one for you. The Messiah is going to be executed, the Bible says, after the 69th week. And Daniel writes that when he is cut off, he will have nothing. You see those Hebrew words, have nothing? It refers to the absence of support or assistance. The anointed one is going to cut off, be cut off and have nothing. And you think about how he died. That day the heavens were blackened at noon till three and all of his disciples whom he loved and cared for for three years fled. 
As he hung on the cross, his own enemies mocked him and made fun of him and ridiculed him. His friends deserted him. His enemies mocked him. But then God the Father forsook God the Son. He shouted, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he experienced not only physical death, but spiritual death on the cross, not for himself, but for my people, as Isaiah said, to whom the stroke was due. Isaiah wrote, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Hey, God wrote this hundreds of years ever before it happened. There's no such prophecy in any of the Hindu books or the Muslim books or any other religious books that the Latter-day Saints or anybody else uses. There's only one book in the history of the world that has specific, accurate, detailed prophecy, and we call it the Holy Bible. Prophecy after prophecy has already come true. And those prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled will literally come true. And people can laugh at the Bible and poke fun at the Bible and skirt its authority, but it is all coming true. Everything God said, He predicted the triumphal entry to the very day, Palm Sunday, Nisan 10. And just as the Passover lambs were brought from Bethlehem into Jerusalem through the Sheep Gate, Jesus on Palm Sunday, the one born in Bethlehem, came into the city, and just as those Passover lambs were inspected all week long, that they be in accordance with the law without spot or blemish, the Messiah, Mary's lamb, Mary had a little lamb, his fleece was indeed white as snow, and there they inspected him all week long, one group after another. One-third of the Gospels are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life, and it is not by accident. And so he comes from Bethlehem. He comes, this one, born in Bethlehem, into Jerusalem, from Bethany the night before. And he comes, just as the prophet said, riding on a donkey, only to be cut off. Now, that's the crucifixion of the Christ. Second, the collapse of the city. Let's think about the collapse of the city. Keep reading with me here in verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after the seven weeks and then after the 62 weeks, two events specifically are told will happen. First, the Messiah will be cut off, he'll be crucified. Then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, Daniel recorded that the city, which contains the sanctuary, namely the city is Jerusalem, will be destroyed. The city will be destroyed along with the sanctuary or the temple where that city houses that temple. And this will be done, notice, by the people of the prince who is to come. Please notice, the prince will not do this, but the people of the prince who is to come will do it. Now, if you remember from Daniel chapter 7, There will be a revived Roman Empire at the end of time. A coalition of nations will come together, ten nations, then rising up among those ten nations will come an eleventh nation from which the Antichrist will come. And so Daniel has already taught us that the Antichrist, the little horn as he's referred to him, must be from the Roman people, from the Roman Empire. And of course, we have 2020 hindsight 
we have that opportunity here because we know who the people were who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. After Messiah was cut off, 38 years later, in 70 AD, Titus Vespucian, the general, came down and decimated the city. And so the people of the prince to come indeed were the Romans. Now on this next slide, this overview slide, follow with me, don't get lost in the weeds. In 924, we have the entire 70 weeks spelled out, the scope of the prophecy. In 925, he tells us what's going to happen in the first 69 weeks, so the first 483 years. In 926, he describes a gap of time. He doesn't spell out how long it is. It's an indiscriminate period of time. And then, as we will see next time, in Daniel 9.27, the clock will start again for the 70th week or the final seven years, bringing it to 490 years. So Daniel records the city that contains this sanctuary will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. Now follow this very, very carefully. Jesus comes in on the final day of the 69th week. We call it Palm Sunday. Then after, and you might want to circle those words in your Bible, then after, then after the 69th week, two events are going to happen. Messiah is going to be executed, and then the city is going to be destroyed. So 38 years later, Titus Vespucian, it's not a disputed date, it's one of the most documented dates in history, he comes down and totally destroys the city. So we know that there is a gap of time between these two dates. Now stay with me. No wonder Jesus, when he came in on Palm Sunday and he looked over the city, the Bible says he wept. Why did he weep? Well, let me read to you what he said. Remember, there's got to be a gap of time. If this was continuous, if the 70 weeks ran nonstop, then Nisan 10... 32 A.D. plus seven years would bring you to what year? 39 A.D., right? What year was the city destroyed? 70 A.D. So you know right off, well, it had to be at least 38 years. Messiah is cut off after the 69th week. The city is destroyed. And here we are 2,000 years later. And the 70th week still hasn't happened. And so as he drew near to the city, Luke 19.41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, what we call Palm Sunday, the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation." Jesus wept, one, because they missed their Messiah and their unbelief and the forgiveness he could bring, but he also wept over his Jewish people because he knew the consequences of that decision. The general comes in in 70 AD, Josephus and other first century historians detail the events of what took place. Josephus records that Titus ordered the temple not to be destroyed. Tear apart the city, don't touch the temple. Remember, the temple that Herod built over the course of several decades was considered in the first century one of the seven major wonders of the ancient world. It was gorgeous. It was breathtaking. But someone in the course of the city being sieged that day set the temple on fire. 
And of course, if you know anything about the temple as it's described in the Bible, there's gold overlaid everywhere and there's a temple treasury where all these precious articles of gold are, 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 are stored and the fire comes and the tapestries and everything burn like a hot oven and all the gold melts and begins to seep down between the stones. And as Jesus prophesied on the Mount of Olives in Matthew, truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. The Roman soldiers could take as the spoils what they could find. And Josephus records they literally pried apart one rock from another and took all the gold. But that wasn't the half of it. Here in the middle of verse 26, the people of the prince to come, the Romans, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. And that's exactly what Titus did. The end came with a flood. Not a flood of water, but this expression in the Bible refers to an army of great force. There are several examples. Let me give you one. You might want to put it in the margin. Isaiah 59, 19. When the enemy shall come in like a flood. We still use that expression. The Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. This great army came in to siege the city of Jerusalem. It came in with great power and there was literally a flood of blood. Josephus reminds us that Titus slaughtered so many Jews that when it rained, the blood literally ran down the streets. Can you imagine the blood running down the streets of our city? He wrote this, this first century historian. The Temple Mount, by the way, if you go to Israel today and you see the western wall, that's not part of the temple. That's just the platform in which the temple lay. The temple was on top of the mountain. It was decimated. The temple mount, everywhere, enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. And so while the city is under siege, some attempt to escape, and everyone that attempted to escape, the Romans would catch them and crucify them right outside the city wall. On average, 500 people a day were being crucified. And they crucified so many Jewish people, they ran out of trees in Jerusalem. And Josephus and other historians note that over 1.1 million Jewish people were killed during the siege by Titus. And Daniel prophesied, all of this would happen. The Messiah would be cut off and the city and the sanctuary would be destroyed. And then he says, even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. What was Gabriel saying to Daniel? He's saying on this holy place, on this temple mount where the sanctuary once was, it's going to be marked by war and desolations. Has that happened? Of course, History records it. It's the most disputed piece of property on the face of the earth, those 37 acres. No wonder Jesus wept, knowing their unbelief and knowing the consequences of their unbelief. God, the Father, His Spirit, obviously does not have a human body, so He doesn't have tear ducts. But the scripture uses anthropomorphisms. God is often given human characteristics. The eyes of the Lord 
go to and fro through the whole earth, that God weeps. And God the Son who had tear ducts in our humanity literally cried just as God wept, the Scripture says to the prophet Jeremiah, and just as he was deeply grieved in Noah's day because our God is a feeling God. God groans beyond what words can express and God cries beyond what tears can ever show. There's the crucifixion of the Christ. There's the collapse of the city, but then there's the construction of the church. Stay with me. The construction of the church. Now, Daniel doesn't say anything about the church because the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. But he is, um, but I'm going to take you a little bit ahead to the Revelation and get you thinking in your mind what the Bible reveals in other passages is happening between the 69th and 70th week. As this slide shows, there is a, the next slide, a parenthesis, verse 25, the first 69 weeks, and verse 26 happens before verse 27. You say, well, that's obvious. You're being physicians. No, I'm really not. The first 69 weeks happen in verse 25. The 70th week happens in verse 27, and there's a gap of time right now in which God is building His church. And of course, follow this. This is very, very important, and I don't want you to miss it. I want you to see this parenthesis in Scripture because there are some people, you know, you got guys like John Piper. I love him to death. He's a good brother. He preaches the gospel. Thank God. R.C. Sproul, love him to death. Glad he preaches the gospel, but they're both wrong on Israel. They think God is done with the Jewish people. They teach what's called replacement theology. So they have to have the 70 weeks running consecutively, which really messes them up because if it all has to be fulfilled by 39 AD, none of this stuff happened like they want to make it happen and they have to manipulate it and spiritualize the text and they destroy its meaning. But there are people today who basically come out of Roman Catholic theology who say God is done with the Jewish people, the church is the new Israel. No, we are not. And so during this gap of time, between the 69th and the 70th week, God is working in a unique way. Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there are seven weeks and 62 weeks. Circle that word and. It represents a Hebrew connective, bringing these two numbers together. God is emphasizing that the seven weeks and the 62 weeks ran consecutively, totaling 483 years, bringing you to the first Palm Sunday. But now I want you to see this third period of time described in the 70th week, separated by a large gap of time. The 70 week, the 70th week did not run consecutively with the 69th week. You say, how do you know that, pastor? We know that for at least three reasons. Reason number one, we're told here in Daniel 9.26 that after the 69th week and before the 70th week, two events will happen. Messiah will be cut off. He's not cut off in the first 69th week. After the 69th week, he's cut off, he's executed, and then the city is destroyed along with the sanctuary. And so obviously, if it ran consecutively, all of that would have had to have happened by 39 AD. It did not. The, the sanctuary was destroyed in 70 AD. So you know there's a gap of time of at least 38 years. And because we'll see in a moment, the events of verse 27 yet, haven't yet happened. There's a gap of at least 2,000 plus years. That's reason number one. Second reason, there are other scriptural examples where there are gaps of time in prophecy. In other words, if I can find other clear scriptural examples where God has a gap of time in a prophetic passage, then I would probably have some assurance that I was not misrepresenting or misinterpreting Daniel 9. 
Most of you know Isaiah 9, verse 6. I gave you this many months ago. For a child will be born to us. We read it every Christmas. A son will be given to us, and the governments will rest on his shoulders. Mm, that's interesting. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. A baby's coming. I asked a man in my car not that long ago, do you believe Messiah? is going to be God or just a man? He said, just a man. I said, what do you do with Isaiah 9, 6? A baby is going to be born and the baby's name is called Mighty God. Then listen to verse 7. We never quote this one at Christmas. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Why don't we quote verse 7 at Christmas? Because there's never been a time in the truest sense where the governments of this world have rested on his shoulders, where he sat on the throne of David, and he has upheld this world with justice and righteousness, literally. And so many times in the Old Testament, in a single paragraph of Scripture, in a single verse of Scripture, both comings of the Messiah are recorded. Let me give you another text, Zechariah 9, verse 9, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fall of a donkey. We quote that from the New Testament, right? Messiah came on a donkey, just as the prophet said. But what does the next verse say? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Has that ever happened? Of course not. It's a reference to the second coming of Messiah when he literally rules and reigns upon the earth. So lumped together in a single verse, you can have the portrait of Messiah as a suffering servant, but also as a reigning king. And of course, the Jews wanted to gravitate only towards the second portrait for obvious reasons. So as this next slide pictures, you see... God had shown some things very clearly, but remember, revelation was being given progressively. So if you were an Old Testament Jew living in ancient times, and if you read the scripture carefully, you might see Golgotha or what we call Mount Calvary. Remember, Abraham had Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah, not by accident. He perfectly typifies by illustration what the Lord Jesus did. And where did Jesus die? On Mount Moriah. We call it Golgotha or Mount Calvary, he could see Mount Calvary and he could see clearly Mount Olivet where the Messiah will literally plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. First, he comes in the air. We shall be caught up together with them. But that's the rapture, but it is second coming. He plants his feet on the ground, but what they did not see is what Paul calls a mystery, something that was hidden and now been revealed that he tells us he is privileged to share with the church, that God is now building in this valley that was basically blind to them, the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. It was a future program that he had. And so do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 21? Let me read it to you. Did you never read the scriptures? And then he quotes one of the great messianic Psalms of the Bible, Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. 
He is speaking to the Jewish leaders. And because they had rejected him as Lord and they failed to produce the fruit that demonstrated that he was their Lord, he said, I will give it to a nation or to a people. Interestingly, though there are tribes, tongues, and nations from across the planet that will be in heaven, when God describes the church, he describes them in a singular fashion. Ethnos, they are a people, they are a nation. Because in the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, black nor right, male nor female. We are one people that God has brought together. And during this interval of time, because of their unbelief, God is building his church. Let me give you another example of a gap of time. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Listen to verse 2 of Isaiah 61. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort those who mourn. Now, let me read to you Luke 4, where Jesus walks into the synagogue there in Nazareth. As the visiting rabbi, he's handed the book or the scroll, better translated more literally, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Remember, no chapter and verse divisions. They had these books and scrolls, so he wants to read the text we just read from Isaiah 61. So obviously, he knew his Bible. He knew the thickness of that scroll. He knew how to find and to turn it up until he got to what we call Isaiah 61. And listen to what he reads. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then the Bible says he sat down, handed the scroll to the synagogue attendant. And he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it had, but why didn't Jesus quote the rest of verse 2? Why did he stop at a comma? Why did he stop right in the middle of a verse? Why did he say, I've come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the next line about God's vengeance was left out? Because that is going to be fulfilled at his second coming when he comes to judge the living and the dead. He came the first time as a suffering lamb, but he will come the second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is coming, and I hope you are ready for it. You say, I want to be ready, Pastor. How can I know? How can I be ready? Listen to me. If you don't get anything else, you may not understand this 70 weeks prophecy, but I'm not going to skip anything in the Bible. I'm going to preach through entire books, every verse, whether you like it or not. So come back, next time we'll be a little lighter, okay? But look, if you don't get anything else out, understand that salvation is not spelled do or don't, it's spelled done. You cannot work for salvation. You cannot try to become a Christian any more than you can try to become an elephant. You can try all you want, but it will never happen. Salvation is not something you earn, it is a gift that you receive. And you may not understand a whole lot, but if you understand that Jesus died instead of you in your place, proved he was able when he was raised from the dead, and if you are willing to trust him as your Lord and Savior today, he will forgive you of every stain and blot of sin, and he will save you into an eternal relationship with himself. To listen again to today's message from Daniel chapter 9, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy will explain how we can be certain that there is a gap between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy and that God is far from being done with Israel. That's tomorrow as we conclude our look at the 70 weeks of prophecy and search the scriptures.